0: Welcome to Sane Split, a podcast about staying sane when relationships end. I am AJ Jakubowska, family law lawyer and mediator. Just like you, I'm human. I understand what can happen when people separate, lots of questions swirling around like confetti, lots of uncertainty, perhaps anger, disappointment, or even pain, sleepless nights, shallow breathing, Will I ever be happy again? Will the kids be okay? How much is all this going to cost? All of these questions are human and you're not alone. This podcast features my thoughts about separation and my interviews with other humans who help people when their relationships end. People who assist with legal issues, who mediate, who look after hearts and minds, and even after the pocketbook. People who might help you plan your future. What you will hear is not legal advice. These are dialogues primarily about the human aspect of separation. We will try to stay away from legal lingo. It's humans talking to humans. I hope that something you hear will help you navigate your way to a saint's split. Welcome and thanks for tuning in. I'm recording this episode on beautiful Grand Manan Island in New Brunswick. It's located at the mouth of the Bay of Fundy. It's roughly 34 kilometers from the New Brunswick shore. The coast of Maine is actually a fair bit closer, but this is a Canadian island, and there is no ferry service from the U.S. If you are a fan of unspoiled maritime's beauty of beaches and coves, unsurpassed hiking and magnificent sunsets and sunrises, this is the place for you and I really encourage you to visit. Today I will address a topic at which many people bristle or at least get uneasy about. I'm talking about it because it's one of the many misconceptions in family law, and as consumers of the mass media, we have been fed some lines about this topic, so to speak, and there are many preconceptions about it out there. I'm talking about prenups. In Canada, more accurately called marriage contracts, we family law lawyers do not use the phrase prenup. My goal today is not to convince you that marriage contracts are always a good thing. It's to make you think about them in a more open-minded way, and perhaps even consider one for your case, without rejecting the idea outright from the very start. So, what are some of the preconceptions or misconceptions about them? Ones that perhaps make people uncomfortable with the subject. From what I have seen and heard over the last 26 years of my practice, the number one false view of marriage contracts is that they are always unfair that they always represent one person taking advantage of the other, that they are about someone trying to protect themselves and their money from another person, their supposed romantic partner. In many people's minds, love should be unconditional and almost blind. Anything less, any talk about money is seen as bad or suspicious. You know, that couple from romance novels and the movies. He's older and very rich. She is young, beautiful, and penniless. He says to her, I will marry you, but only if you sign a prenup. Nobody says marriage contracts in movies. Or an older gentleman, an accomplished artist, who meets a young man, handsome, full of life, and they move in together into the artist's big house. And presto, they want to tie the knot. But the artist insists that the young man sign something, as I have heard it described before. There is, baked into these scenarios, a whiff of unfairness, greed, unwillingness to share, someone cheating someone else out of their entitlement. Suspicion that perhaps the young woman's or young man's motives are not pure and that this is the test to see if he or she is really marrying for love or for money. Or maybe it's the older men who are trying to cheat the others out of their entitlements. After all, marriage is a partnership, right? Let's try and look at a marriage contract through a different lens, a dispassionate one. Marriage contracts are not generally signed by two young people who get married in their 20s. Why? Because they're both just starting out together. They likely have little at the beginning of their marriage, and what they come to over the years, they earn and build together. Most marriage contracts are contemplated when one of the following two elements are present. Or sometimes both. Number one, time. And number two, money. What do I mean by time? When one of the spouses-to-be has had time, years, to build up a net worth. Marriage contracts are common among people who are marrying for the second time or who are marrying for the first time when they are older. Again, why? Because by this time, they have built up their assets. And yes, they want to protect those assets, what they bring into the marriage in the event the relationship doesn't work out. Unfair, you say. But think about it. If you had $3 million worth of assets, something you came to through hard work, a business you built from scratch perhaps and you met someone you married them and that marriage didn't work out would you be jazzed at the idea of sharing that 3 million with the other spouse after a 6 year marriage i'm not sure mm-hmm. you would and now we have naturally moved into the second element often present when a marriage contract is contemplated the first was time and the second is yes money it's not generally future money it's most often current or present money in other words someone with a material net worth about to enter into a marriage so back to point one that can come as a result of time a person in midlife for example marrying for the second time, or it can come from family. And here I'm talking about a situation where at issue is a family business, for example, built up over three generations. One of the daughters of the current owner is engaged. She is already a shareholder in the business, both directly and indirectly, and earns a passive income from the business because she has an interest in it in such situations it is not uncommon for the family of the bride to be a family that has worked for three generations to build up a successful and profitable enterprise to wonder what would happen if the marriage did not last forever which is always the hope what would be the result if they split up at some point the question i'm often asked is would the other spouse be entitled to any part of the business in this scenario the time factor relates more to the bride's family not to herself past generations build up her wealth and here we could have an example of a situation where two young people enter into a marriage contract because of time and money. I hope I'm illustrating to you as I go that there may be perfectly good reasons to consider a marriage contract. Let me give you an example of one that does not involve a high net worth. And here I will talk about a specific rule in the relevant legislation that might easily impact an average middle-class Ontarian. Here is the scenario. Shauna is 45. She was married briefly in her 20s. She owns a house in the country. She commutes to the city to work. She recently completed extensive renovations to it. It's worth $1.2 million. She meets Pedro. They fall in love. Pedro is renting an apartment. Within a year of meeting, Shauna and Pedro move in together, or more specifically, Pedro moves into Shauna's house. And by this time, the value of the house has increased to $1.5 million. They marry a year later. The market being what it is, the house is now worth $2 million. These days, not an uncommon scenario for a middle-class couple in our province. Shauna and Pedro separate eight years later. At the time of their separation, they are still living in the house owned by Shauna at marriage. It is now worth $3 million. Sounds like the market has cooled off a little. Here is the catch. Despite the fact that Shauna had this home at marriage that she brought it as an asset into the marriage and that at the time it was worth $2 million. Now that she and Pedro are separated and divorcing, she has to share the entire value of the house at separation, $3 million, with Pedro, even though one might say that the first $2 million came from her, right? Why is that? because the relevant legislation the family law act the law that in ontario deals with how property and debts are divided at separation for a married couple says that the value needs to be shared the house which shauna originally owned and brought into the marriage is a matrimonial home at separation meaning the property which the couple ordinarily occupied at the time of separation. If you've been listening to this podcast, you are familiar by now with the mechanics of equalizing assets and debts in Ontario on separation. When the net family property calculation is made as of the separation date, each spouse gets credit for the value of assets they brought into the marriage so my favorite example is a picasso painting if shauna owned one at marriage and it was worth two million then and if by the date of separation it was worth four million shauna would share only the increase in the value with Sean. she would get credit for the value of the painting at marriage the two million dollars I hope you are still following. I'm trying to keep the example simple. And I do realize that some of these concepts are not intuitive. So in this example, Shauna would only have to share $2 million worth of value with Pedro. The first $2 million would essentially be protected because she brought the Picasso painting into the marriage and it was... Worth $2 million at the time. Here is the kicker. This rule does not apply to the matrimonial home. This is one of the exceptions to the general rules in the Family Law Act and is a very important and common reason why people who marry later in life enter into marriage contracts. Based on the Family Law Act, Shauna is not able to protect the value of her home at marriage. The $2 million it was worth then. The rule that applies to the Picasso painting does not apply to Shauna's house because it's a matrimonial home at separation. I have given you a single reason why A marriage contract may make a whole lot of sense in Shauna's case, but there are others, many others, and they are not always related to property. They may have to do with support, for example. My overall advice here is the following. Have a consultation with a family law lawyer if you are planning on getting married. It's worth it. There may be something about your situation that is unique based on the law. You may simply not know that as a layperson. Mm -hmm. I cannot tell you how many times I have sat across from a person in Shauna's shoes. At separation, they have to share with the other spouse the value sometimes a very substantial value of the home they brought into the marriage. And I explain the problem they are facing based on the law, and they say, I did not know about the exception to the rule. In fact, I didn't even know the Family Law Act existed. Well, don't make that mistake. Marriage can be a wonderful thing. And of course, everyone hopes for a long and successful union. But it's wise to prepare for the rainy day. Thinking about a poor outcome is not about killing romance. It's about being realistic and wise. Here are a few more things you may want to know about marriage contracts in Ontario. Number one, they are specifically addressed at part four of the Family Law Act, talking about domestic contracts if you are interested in the specific provisions i encourage you to take a look number two a marriage contract does not have to be signed before the marriage hang on what are you saying aj yes you can enter into a marriage contract at any point during the marriage for some people signing a contract is a condition to the marriage taking place. But it doesn't have to be. Number three, a marriage contract can deal with a whole variety of issues, property, debts, support, even the right to direct the education and moral training of children using the language of the legislation. But importantly, not the following issues. Number one, Parenting responsibility and parenting time. Decision-making. These are new terms in our law, and these may make more sense to you if I use the old terms, which are custody and access or residence. In a marriage contract, you cannot say who will have custody of future children and where they will live in the event of a separation. Number two, in a marriage contract, you cannot deprive the other spouse of possessory rights. That is a mouthful. I realize that. Here's the explanation. We have specific rules around matrimonial homes on separation. One of the rules is that each spouse, irrespective of title, in other words, no matter whose name the matrimonial home is in, has the right to possess the home. In other words, live there. Again, this is different from title, legal ownership. So at separation, a spouse can leave the matrimonial home in only one of two ways voluntarily or by court order. Back to marriage contracts. This rule about possessory rights. Is not something a couple can go behind. So, for example, if a marriage contract says that Pedro will move out of Shona's house within 15 days of separation, and Shona's house is the matrimonial home at separation, this clause, this term of the contract, is not enforceable. It has no effect. Interesting stuff, isn't it? Did you learn anything? I hope so. Do you have a slightly different view of marriage contracts now? And again, I'm speaking about Ontario because that is where I practice. In other jurisdictions, depending on the provisions of the law, there may be more or less reason to enter into a marriage contract. Look, separation is not a cakewalk and that is an understatement if there ever was one. If you have been listening to this podcast, you have heard me make this point over and over again. It's like walking on cracked ice. It's like a tsunami washing over you. The emotional and psychological devastation can be profound. There is also the financial aspect of separation. For many couples, a key element of the drama that unfolds when two people go their separate ways. I say, do what you can when the sun is shining. Inform yourself. Know your rights. Understand the rights of your spouse. Have an open dialogue about money, about property. It's best, in my view, to address these issues head-on before they become a problem. Marriage contracts are a great idea in the right circumstances, and some, I would say, they are essential. They are one important way to navigating your way to a sane split. Thank you for listening. I hope you will tune in again. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me through my website, separationinontario.com. Subscribing to the podcast through your favorite app will make future episodes available to you automatically. Signing off for now.